Well, good. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're here. This is, uh, I want to start today, if I can, um, I want to pick up something from uh, last week. Um, if we can, turn to 3 Nephi 9. And we're going to go down to 20. Because one of the things we were talking about last time is that we found it kind of interesting that when everybody's kind of in the darkness, all this destruction has happened, and then they hear the voice coming. And you remember that the Lord starts walking through all of these, and He's saying, um, like if we look farther up here, remember, uh, the city of uh, Anoiha, verse 7. They're, they were destroyed because the blood of the prophets and the saints uh, shall not come up anymore against me. Uh, eight, the city of Gideandai. Uh, why were they destroyed? So that the blood of the prophets and saints don't come up anymore against me. We just get this pattern over and over and over saying one of the reasons why they were destroyed is that they were killing prophets and saints. And then we found it curious, didn't we, that... Um, he gets through all of this, and then what's he going to, he, in verse 19, he's going to say, and now you're going to offer up no, no more unto me what? The shedding, the shedding of blood. Okay, that there is, a, there is a sense in which some of the things that were going on with some of these uh, individuals was they, they were also sacrificing their blood. Okay? And then, and then we're going to get this, verse 20. And he shall offer up a sacrifice unto me, a broken heart and a contrite spirit. I'm doing away with the sacrifice by the shedding of blood. Um, and if you'll do that, I'll baptize with fire and the Holy Ghost uh, on and on. Okay? Now, I think we need to put this in context. And then you're going to begin to understand why he said this. And it's actually a lead into the stuff we're talking about today. When, uh, when the Savior was crucified... What time of year was it in Israel? What were they celebrating? Okay, what was the purpose of Passover? The day to what? The Exodus. Passover was that the destroying angel was going to pass by and uh, in order to not be one of those, the very last plague where they were killing the, the firstborn were all going to die in Egypt that the destroying angel was coming down and how are they going to demonstrate that they are the believers? They're going to put the lamb's blood on the lentil. And, and one of the brethren, I don't remember which one it was, talking in conference about Passover is actually two-part. It wasn't just sacrificing the blood. It was applying the blood. You had to do both. It wouldn't make just sense just to have the sacrificial lamb. You also had to take the blood and apply it on the lentil. Okay, and those that would do that, the destroying angel would pass by. Okay? Now, incidentally, we also know, do we have an inside version of that? Sure. We're to take the, the, the wide doorpost. Okay? Symbolic of the doorpost into our heart. Thank you. So what we're going to do is we're going to apply the blood of the Lamb that was sacrificed on the doorpost of our heart. So that whatever's going to come in here 
the, the destroying angel is going to pass us by because we have his blood on our heart. Does that make sense? Okay. And it was such a big deal that after that, did they ever do this again? No, this was a one-time deal. From here on out, in Israel, how would they celebrate Passover? Feast of the Passover. They're going to have, they're going to have the, the, the Passover Seder that is still celebrated today. No blood on the doorpost. But in, in ancient Israel, when they had the temple, what would they, what would they do to celebrate that part? There would be a sacrifice of of the lamb, and then what would they do with the blood? Sprinkle it on the altar in the temple. Okay, that's what they do. That's why everybody would then gather. At least, not every time. You could be in Nazareth and have your Passover Seder, but as often as possible, you wanted to go up into Jerusalem to be at the temple during, when the blood is actually sprinkled on the altar. Okay, to celebrate Passover. That's why it was so unusual, uh, and we'll actually talk about this in a sec, that when the, the other one, this is like in April, right? March, uh, first history, uh, first month. Okay, Six months later, they would celebrate Feast of the Tabernacles, okay? where they're going to celebrate the fact that they were protected in the wilderness, and this is the Feast of the Tabernacles. Uh, they built Sukkot. They, they built little... Tents. Tents, but it has to have a hole in it. You've got to be able to see the stars when you build a Sukkot. So it's obviously actually made out of a lot of logs and stuff like that. And then you invite people over and all kinds of stuff with Sukkot and the Feast of the Tabernacles. But part of it was celebrating it with palm leaves. You know, celebrate that we, we survived and part of that was there. So it, it was interesting that when the Savior comes into Jerusalem just before his crucifixion, and they're celebrating Passover. What are the, what are the crowds doing? Hollies. And they're calling out Hoshana. Hoshana. And part of it was the Feast of the Tabernacles. We're inviting the Lord in. Hoshana. God be with us. God save us. But the other part of that is this was the coronation of kings. You know. That we're going to lay down the palm leaves. But they were mixing Sukkot Tabernacles with Passover. Okay. Does that make sense? Why are we talking about all of this? Where the heck is he going with all this stuff? Because the Savior was the king. He was. So now, if they're celebrating Passover in Jerusalem, and here comes the crucifixion, <coughs> what are they celebrating in Zarahemla and Bountiful? Same time of year, right? Passover. Okay, so, so think about literally what's happened here. The people, actually probably the more righteous, have gathered to Bountiful. Why? What's in Bountiful? The temple. the temple. They're coming up to the temple. They're celebrating Passover. And what just happened? They got passed over. With all the destruction going on all around them, the destroying angel was destroying all of the cities. What's happened to those in Bountiful? They were passed over. Okay? So, would it make sense that in that setting, come to Passover, in Bountiful, everybody, that they're being destroyed out there, and then now we're in the darkness, 
and you were there celebrating the sprinkle of the blood of the Lamb on the altar, then the Lord says to them in verse 20, He's going to say, Now what I want is, verse 19, You shall offer up unto me no more the shedding of blood like you just did. Passover will come, but it will come to those who, who is passed over now? Those with broken heart, contrite spirit, who instead of taking the blood of the Lamb and putting it on the altar of the temple, where are you putting that blood? On your heart. On the lintel of your heart, the doorpost in there. Is so, the lintel a doorpost? Yeah, the lintel is the top frame. I spell that. L-E-N-T-I-L, I think. The door lintel. Okay. Is that what it is? Yeah. I don't know what the side bolts are called, but the top part is the lintel. And that was particularly where you wanted to. So everybody, everything that would cross into there would... Um, now, by the way, the only the, the parallel to this is the fact that if you... Uh, anybody ever uh, serve a mission or anything where you're out knocking on doors and you come across a Jewish home to knock on the door? What do you see on the doorpost? The mezuzah. Right? What's in the mezuzah? Yeah, this is, this is the law. This is the Shema, the, the name, Deuteronomy 6. This is the law, and we're going to put that on the doorpost. Okay? Which incidentally then, when we put the blood of the Lamb, we're also putting His law on our hearts, right? On the doorpost. You see the symbolism? It's just, it, it, it's wonderful. Whatever's going to come into this heart, or into this home, is governed by His blood, and by His laws, uh, and that's what it, I'm going to write the law on my heart. I'm going to put his law on my doorpost. Okay? Yeah. Alright, so here they are in here, here they're in Bountiful. Here we go. All this destruction is happening and they have been passed over. The Passover has occurred and now they're going to see the switch to say, I need you to do this differently. Okay, now one more element though that I want you to be aware of with this. Let's go to 3 Nephi 8, 5. Okay. When did this destruction occur? What year? And when? The first month. Again, it's Tishri. It's the, it's the first Jewish month. So that's when Passover occurs. Okay. First month of what year? 34, okay? Alright. Now, once you see something, so this is when the destruction actually happens, which makes sense, because it was in the first month that the destruction was happening in Jerusalem, the crucifixion, happening here, that makes sense, and it's Passover. Okay? Now, I want you to look ahead now, 3 Nephi 10, somebody read 10, 18. Who's got that? Wendy? And it came to pass that in the ending of the thirty and fourth year, behold, I will show unto you that the people of Nephi who were spared, and also those who had been called by who had been spared, did have great favor shown unto them, and great blessings poured out upon their heads, insomuch that soon after the ascension of Christ into heaven, he did manifest himself. Okay. So when did he come, according to this? In the end of 
the 34th year. Okay. What do we generally think of when we think about how this works? That's right. He comes immediately. Three days, destruction, it gets clear, he comes. No. The destruction was in the beginning of the 34th year. There is darkness. And then, and then what happens? They go home. Then what are they doing at the end of the 34th year? Back to Passover again. The righteous who have repented and thought about it and been rebuilding and preparing. Because what's about to happen? When they go back to Bountiful, what is going to happen to these people? Christ is going to come. This is a group of people who are about to be in the presence of the Savior. And they have to be cleansed and prepared for this. We had, we had this discussion yesterday in High Priest um, where, where somebody was saying, uh, that he, he talking about how he thought how wonderful it was that the Savior said to the thief on the cross, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. We said, well, that's the world of spirits, it says. He said, no, but think about how magnificent of forgiveness that is. He's going to take this lifelong thief and he's going to bring him with him into paradise. Isn't that great? He said, isn't that wonderful? And I said, <laughs> Brother Hinkley, here we go again. I said, what would happen if you took a man, regardless of where his thoughts and hearts were at the moment that he was being crucified? Hey, this is a righteous man. We deserve what we're getting. This man's done nothing. I get that. But what if you took this man and you said, I love you enough with all of your sin and everything. I'm going to immediately take you into the bosom of Abraham and you're now going to suddenly be in the presence of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That would be hell for him. It'd be like taking somebody out of a dark movie theater and immediately rushing them out into a bright sunlit day and then they just aren't ready for it, are they? The most merciful thing that could happen to them is not bring them into paradise. It's to allow them to be taught, to accept the gospel, to grow, to be ready and as soon as they're ready then accept all that. Isn't that great? I says, I don't think the Savior hated the, that thief that much that he would do that to him. And he would go, okay, you might be right. <laughs> okay, you have a group of people that have, they're, they're observant, but they need to repent, and they're about to be brought into the presence of the Savior. Okay? When you go to the temple, are you immediately ready? To, the temple is down to prepare you to enter into the presence of the Lord. That's the purpose. Okay? What do you do to have to get there? You're going to take on a series of covenants and promises and commitments. You're going to demonstrate that you've taken those on. That you've learned them. Before you're actually brought into the presence of the Lord. So we have a group of people in of Nephites that are being prepared now to enter into the presence of the Lord. You're about to watch this happen. But in order to do that, first of all, they're going to wait after the destruction. They're going to wait how long? A year. Okay, by the way, if somebody joins the church, how long is it before they can go to the temple? 
There's a period of seasoning and maturing that has to do before we're ready. Yes? Um, isn't it true, too, though, that he was called a thief, but the Savior knew that he was celestial? I mean, isn't that also a possibility? It is. Romans, it is. The Romans said he was a thief. I always took that to mean no matter what name calling people make of you, uh -huh. if they call you a thief and they hang you up on the cross, yep. the Savior can look in your heart and see if you're and, and That's right. I, and, and, I, and I get that. And, and it's very possible that he was wrongly accused. He'd always been very righteous. He was wrongly accused, crucified. See, we don't know his heart. He doesn't scream and give up the ghost. Yeah. <laughs> but, but at the same time... But he also could have had like a really rotten, horrible childhood and, and lived a lifetime of crime. We don't know. All we know is that the Lord is going to move us into the, the light that we can handle. On the other side, if we're ready, we're, we will get as much light as we're ready to handle. And if he lived a lifetime of crime, it would have been hell to immediately bring him in light that he was not yet ready to handle. With these guys, it was still going to be... This is the righteous Nephites. They needed a year to prepare for what was about to occur. Okay? And then there's going to be one more step that we'll talk about in a second. Oh, I was could there be a comma there too? Could it be, blessed art thou today, comma, for thou shalt dwell with me in paradise? Could be. So it wouldn't mean today to in paradise because to get to paradise, don't you have to be baptized? Yeah, well, but... Uh, Part of what we're talking about, and, and this is kind of what we ended up with yesterday among the, uh, the brilliant minds of our high priest world, <laughs> is that there are a lot of mansions up there. There's a, there's a lot of layers. And again, if you can just picture that says, we don't know exactly what's going on there, but we do know that the Lord isn't going to introduce somebody into a situation where they're going to be placed in more life than they can handle. That would be damning. That would be damning to... to, to do that to somebody. Okay? Yeah. Well, a day, the Lord isn't necessarily a day here. There's another one. This day, mm -hmm. thousand years from now. Yeah, you're right. That, that's a good way to put it. So we, we don't know. But that, that's why I say there's a principle underlying here that says the Lord is going to prepare each of us to be in His presence. Now, what it will take, given our lives and, and things that need to be done, is going to be part of the process. Yeah. Yeah, see, see, there's the there's the question because that's the other one that's open to interpretation. What is paradise in the first place? Because in, in the traditional Christian world, there's heaven and hell. You know, and it's like and there's a purgatory and everything. We're talking about uh, a world out there, the spirit world, where there's a lot of education and going on, and those that are going to be more towards uh, joy, and those that are more in misery. That's why I say there's a lot of shades in between that. And that's not paradise. Some of that I think you could call paradise. But that's why Joseph Smith in the, in the inspired version of the, of the Bible said that, that that word was originally meant to be this day you'll be with me in the world of spirits. So he was getting past the let's get past trying to figure out what purgatory is or paradise, it's just like, you're going to be with me in the world of spirits. If you really are starting to believe in me now, I'm going to 
I'm going to get you to the other side of the veil, and I'm going to hand you off to somebody who's going to teach you the gospel, and you're going to begin to accept it given the life that you're starting to get. Okay? Does that make sense? Yeah? Yeah, because ultimately if we're going to talk about th that place of covenant making, there's going to be a part there that are going to kind of reserve for that. But that's why it's, it's so broad. Um, now, with these guys, that, yeah? Just a clarification. So, what you're saying is the first time, right after the destruction in the spring, yeah. are they just hearing his voice? Yes. Then it gets light. Then they go home. And then they're going to both go prepare themselves. And then at the end of the 34th year, those that are righteous are now going to come back to Bountiful for Passover. They're still observant. They're, so they've had this year to kind of get ready to prepare themselves, kind of rebuild things, repent. They're starting to get it. Okay? Now, Lord isn't done with them yet. That's, that's part of what makes this fun. Okay? So now we hop over to 3 Nephi 11. Okay, somebody start with verse 2. everybody there at Passover at the temple and they're kind of talking to each other and it's like, well, I've, man, I've been working all year long trying to rebuild this thing and the city's gone and my house is gone. And, but, boy, remember what we heard last year? Wow, that's how we've been doing. Yeah, it's got me spooked. Yeah, I've been trying to do right. That's why I'm back at Passover. Okay, now, here's, here comes the next part. Okay, now, I need you to see that there's two things going on here. First of all, there's a voice speaking to them. Can they hear it? Yeah, they're hearing it. But they don't understand it. Okay, so let's find out what this voice is doing to them. Okay, let's keep going. this voice and it's actually doing three things to them. It's going to cause them to quake. It pierces them and it burns them. Okay? Quake, pierce, and burn. Huh? It is a cleansing. Very good. What's happening here? They're being cleansed. What happens when we are in a place what happens when we take a sacrament worthily? We're cleansed. We're being cleaned. What happens when you're in a place and the Spirit powerfully bears witness to you? The Spirit can't, bear, can't dwell in an unholy temple, right? So when, when you get this kind of power, spiritual power, what happens? It, you, you're being burned. What's being burned? Your heart. 
You're being cleansed. You're being cleaned. Again, keep in mind, what's going on here? Because sometimes we want to look at this and go, well, they just weren't listening very well. You know, they weren't taking their prayer right. And so because of that, they're just not getting it. And, you know, and they were just kind of being foolish. They were looking in the wrong places. Because I've heard that one. This is, this is proof that they just didn't know how to pray yet. Okay? No, what's happening here? They're being cleaned. For what? To be in the presence of the Savior. Okay, so, step number one. They, they're, they're taught the gospel. Repent. This is my son. This is why you guys are still alive. You know, repent of your sins. Then there is a, a period of time where they go home and keep the commandments and do what they're supposed to do. They've got a year to kind of get ready. Then they come back to the temple and what begins to happen? They're being cleansed, right? If somebody goes to the temple for the first time, are they cleansed? Yeah. That's how we start, right? The first part of the temple is get you, get you clean, get you prepared to be taught. That make sense? Okay, so you see the temple parallel? Anytime we're going to talk about getting a group of people ready to be in the presence of the Lord, you're going to get this, this process. Talk, time, cleansing, preparation. Okay? Yeah. No, we, we don't want that to happen too fast. Now, here's the other part, though, that I want you to... There is an element here that, uh, as I've studied uh, uh, about prayers and praying and promptings and all that kind of stuff, uh, there is an element here, though, that I, I don't want to completely uh, pass over. <laughs> President Packer said this early uh, as, a, as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. As an apostle, I listen now to the same inspiration coming from the same source in the same way that I listened to as a boy. The signal is much clearer now. Okay? Now you go, well, he's an apostle. Of course that's. If you've been in the church for a while, are you hearing the same voice that you heard when you were little? Or when you heard, it's the same voice, right? Same source? Are you hearing it differently? Why? You've got to kind of focus on that and prepare yourself and yeah. <coughs> and practice to know what you're listening for. Okay? I was I was doing a single adult fireside last night up in Denton. Uh, and we this part of what we were talking about is how many times uh, for these people that were in this fireside, they're very clear about the times that they had prayed for answers and thought they were doing the right thing and then really got burned and so now they don't trust their spiritual machinery much anymore. You know, I, I, I guess I'm just not in tune. Okay? How did you respond to that? I said, you, you're getting it right all along. I, I think active Latter-day Saints, more often than not, hear the voice of the Spirit, but don't trust themselves to follow the prompting because it's going to mean they're going to have to change. Or that, it's, that if I follow the prompting, it means life is going to be... I'm going to get rocky. 
you know? If you're going to accept a calling to be the scoutmaster, it's not going to be, whoosh, nice. <laughs> We're going to have some sleepless nights. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. As a child of this more pure thing, just closer to heaven altogether, you were born, just still very close to heaven, and slowly with the years, you just a bad Oh, isn't that the truth? When we're, that's why it says become as a child again, because when we're kids, we just pray and get answers. I remember being very little and watching uh, my kite float away into the sky, and because the string broke, and I'm guessing just how high I could get it, and it broke, and I'm in tears, and my dad's going to take me to go find the kite, and I'm going to, I run back in, and I kneel down and pray, and say, Heavenly Father, help me find my kite. Well, you know, kite in the overall economy of things, but I believed it. And we found it, miraculously, in a tree. Well, you know, then I get older, and I'm not about to pray for kites. I'm smarter than that now. <laughs> When I was, I think I've told this story, when I was newly out on my mission, uh, I think I'd only been out just a few weeks, uh, I'm out with a, um, a senior uh, experienced guy, he's been out 20 months, he's just like, you know, he's just far away, and we go knock on the door, and the lady says, uh, I'm not interested, and we go, okay, and we walk back down, and I turn to my companion, and I say, we're supposed to go back and give that lady a blessing. Or leave a blessing in her home. And he goes, you're nuts. <laughs> and I said, no, we're supposed to go back and leave a blessing in her home. He says, go ahead, Greeny, go get it. <laughs> so I go check it up there. Knock on the door. And she goes, you again? And I said, would it be all right if we just left a blessing in your home? She goes, sure, come on in. <laughs> So we go in. Can we kneel? Yeah. So we kneel down. Close our eyes. Arm to the square. Bless this home. One day the gospel will be preached here and the life will be, you know, blessed will be the spirit here and everything. We get done. Thank you. We're gone. And we left. I have no, I never went back to that home. Have no idea what happened there. And I never did it again on my entire mission. After that I was too smart. <laughs> I was too smart. I knew not to do that. They didn't want me. It wasn't going to work anyway. Okay? Sometimes you're right. When we're children, we just get it. And then we get cynical and older and more mature and advanced. And now we know better. And then we just screw things up. Yeah? Oh, and this may sound really weird, but I will never forget when I, I realized spiritually that the spirit that's within me that's looking at you right now is the same as it was when it's just that my mind and my body had to grow up with, grow up to. Yes. Um, what's the word? Yeah. We just have to. We have. We have to get caught up, and and that's why I think there's a preparation here that says. And so there is this level that says for these people that weren't as used to it, and they weren't recognizing what they were hearing, that there was an element here of. I'm hearing it, but I'm not understanding it. I know something's going on inside me. I don't know what to do or where to look or what this means to me. We're a little bit like little Samuel going, yeah, Lord, here am I, you know, and I'm just not sure what you want me to do. Yeah. I think it's also that the more we know, the more we 
saints, we are often, often, often in the position of hearing and not understanding. You don't, you begin to doubt your spiritual veracity uh, or you begin to doubt your ability to do what you've been asked to do, but the Spirit is still speaking to you and you're hearing it, but you're not understanding it. And by the way, have you ever had the experience of knowing that you're supposed to bear your testimony in sacrament meeting? Anybody ever do the uh, uh, pierce, quake, and shake? <laughs> I don't know I'm supposed to do that. <laughs> I hate to speak in front of the crowd, but there I am. Sometimes we do that. Okay? And we know what we're supposed to do, and we get the Spirit. So I think we hear, but we don't understand a lot. So there is a wonderful parallel here to prayer. Okay? But, don't miss the important part of this also, that I think there's a preparation, that they're being prepared to stand in front of the Savior. And by the way, how are they prepared? Yeah, but that still small voice was a gift, right? They were being cleansed. Sometimes, you know, when people say, I, I want to be able to get ready, to go to the temple or I want to be able to stand for the Savior, what do I need to do? You know, surrender. 
do it for you. Let Him cleanse you. That's how He does it. It's a gift. I need to be more charitable. Really? Charity is a gift. Surrender. Let Him fill you with charity. That's what He does. Is that these are gifts and He does this to us. And all He asks us to do is that we be obedient and open. I just think it's wonderful how this thing works. Okay? Alright, now. Verse 4. And it came to pass that they heard the voice and they understood it not. Verse 5. And again the third time. It's what? It's the trouble prayer. It's the three prayer that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. Surprise, surprise. Again, the third time they did hear the voice and did what? Open their ears. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. They're going to open their ears and their eyes towards the sound thereof and look steadfastly towards heaven where the sound came. And the third time they understood the voice and it said unto them, this is my beloved son. Now, if I say to you, you need to open your ears. Those that have ears to hear, you need to open your ears so that you'll hear it. You just found, how do you open your ears? How are their ears open? The Spirit did what? Testified, cleared them, prepared them. If you want to know how to open your ears, let the Spirit fill you and it will happen. That's how it works. This is a matter of the QT swabs and, you know. It's a matter, he says, when I fill you with my spirit, your ears will be open. Is, is that a better way of saying it? That's how it works. Then, when you're filled with the spirit, then you know where to look. Otherwise, you're trying to do it your own dang way. And not do it so well. I think a lot of times we want to do it our way because we're scared to do it. Yeah? We're scared because... I don't know. Remember when we were talking about Nephi uh, and the... Uh, anybody who's heard me speak lately has heard me go over this over and over. Nephi and sword, you know, and he's supposed to kill Laban. You know, he went into that whole thing with Laban with one thought on his mind. The Lord will kill Laban just the same way as he killed the Egyptians. I shall show up, step over his dead body and get the plates. He never realized, so right at the moment he's busy playing with the sword and looking at it, thinking how wonderful this is, and the Spirit says, kill Laban. That's not how it works. I show up, you like the Egyptians, you drown him or whatever, and I get the plates. Part of what happens when we're hearing the Spirit is that the Spirit tells us to do what? To, tells us to do something we don't want to do. So one of the reasons we don't want to listen is, I don't really want to do what you want me to do. I would rather you have somebody else do it, and I'll just kind of pick up the pieces. Well, we're explaining how differently than we imagine. It's just not... I have, in my mind, how this will work. I have a wayward son 
an angel is going to show up, there will be fire and brimstone and quaking, and he will sleep for three days, and then he will wake up and say, I've seen my Jesus and I'm ready to... Make it happen that way. And because he's driving me nuts, a little blood and terror in his heart wouldn't be so bad. I need to get even. And instead it happens quietly and peacefully and gradually. But it wasn't what we prepared. It wasn't what we planned. Okay? Sisters who are married, you didn't always marry the guy you expected you would. When you were 15 and 16, you pictured somebody else. And then, then this guy shows up and it's like, oh, I'm supposed to marry him. Really? It's not the way my brain said he would look. He's a lot shorter. <laughs> and he doesn't have all the muscles that uh, what I was picturing. <laughs> okay, so, so they go through this process. A um, couple of things here. Uh, verse 7, uh, Beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased, they're hearing the voice of the Father. Uh, when they, as they understood, they cast their eyes towards heaven. They see a man descending out of heaven. He's clothed in a white robe. He came down, stood in the midst of them. Um, he stretched forth his hand and spake unto them. Now, I think this is remarkable. If there is a dramatic moment in the history of the world, this is one of the, this is a Hollywood moment, isn't it? Don't you want like a soaring uh, musical score coming up behind this? You know, can you just picture all this? And a Spielberg moment where he's focusing in on the faces of the people going. And he's going to go from face to face as they're watching this come down. This is a Hollywood moment. Okay. This is the Savior's moment. He's made it through triumphantly. He survived everything there. We don't know where he's been for a year, but here he is. This is his moment. These are his people. They've been waiting for him for hundreds of years. This is his moment. And what does he say? Verse 11. Behold, I am the light and life of the world. I have drunk out of the bitter cup which the Father hath given me, and I have done what? Glorify the Father. In this Hollywood moment, he wants them to know everything I've done has been why? To glorify the Father. This is all about the Father. I've glorified the Father um, in taking upon the sins of the world in which I have suffered what? The will of the Father. Immediately, this magnificent being is saying everything I've done is to glorify my Father. That's who I am. And be obedient to the Father in everything He asks. Which, by the way, I think, I think that was the problem in the council in heaven. You know, whom shall I send? One going, you can send me, but i got my way of how I want it done. I'm not going to die. That crucifixion thing is looking kind of nasty. I don't think so. <laughs> if this is about dying for sin and pain and flogging and condescending, I ain't doing all of that. I want to rebel and take over kingdom. I'm going to create a coup d'etat right now. We're taking over heaven. And the other one's saying, I will simply do thy will. And if that means drinking the bitter cup, and even in the garden, 
Can you picture part of the Savior going, I had no idea it would feel this way. I had, oh my gosh. It sounded good at the council in heaven. As a God, I have the ability to not just feel a lot of pain and pass out. As a God, I have the ability to endure far more pain. My pain bucket is big. I can endure this pain longer without my physical symptoms becoming overwhelming and passing out. I have no idea. If there's any other way for this cup to pass, I'm there. But I'll follow your will. This is what it takes. I'm there. Wow. Okay. So I've done it. I'm there. Okay. Now, here's this process here. Now, verse 14. Who's got verse 14? Read it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, read it loud. Yep. Okay, now, there's something that's amazing happen, happening here, okay? Uh, most of the estimates, if you kind of read through, there were probably somewhere on the order of about a couple thousand people, probably here at them, okay? That's going to take a long time for everybody to come forward and to be able to feel those prints and, and put their hand into his side, okay? Now, He's wanting them to know that he's the God of the, the whole earth and that he's been fulfilled and that he did it. Wouldn't this magnificent appearance, here he is, showing up, all of that stuff, wouldn't that tell him that he is who he said he was? That would convince me too. But that's not what he does. This isn't just going to be a group experience. This ends up being what? Yeah. This is going to be very personal. Now, let me take it one step farther. You ever, you ever had a, uh, like an apostle or, or a prophet come to state conference? And then what usually happens? Shake your hand. That's right. It's going to be a long... You know, we're going, to, we're going to have a long line. Everybody wants to shake the apostle's hand, okay? Wouldn't that have worked? Here's, here's the Savior. Let's go forward, and we're all going to shake his hand. And now we know. I, I, I felt his hand. I won't wash his hand again kind of thing. Wouldn't that have worked? What's he doing? What does he want them to touch? Yes. Okay, his side, meaning this is, you know, symbolic of this is where I died, kind of thing. Or this is, I mean, it's kind of like that level. Okay, and then he says, touch the... Why does he still have those? Yes. And specifically, I have engraved engraven you on the palms of my hands personally and I want you to have that personal physical experience with me 
So first of all, part of what this preparation was, in a Passover, a year, being cleansed, it was preparing them not for a group experience with the Savior, it was preparing them for a very, very personal experience with him. And when he comes again, he's going to have this, these same wounds. Yes. Will he ever? At some point you would think that, yeah, somewhere along the way, but he's got one more place he needs to show these, right? <coughs> DNC 45. Okay? The Jerusalem's about to be destroyed. Here comes the Mount of Olives and split. You know, the, this, this being comes down and stands in front of them. They're able to survive it on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And they go, the Messiah has come, you know, and they're all gathering around him. And it's like, this is wonderful, this is awesome. Wait! What are those wounds? In your hands and your feet. And he says, these are the that I received where? In the house of my friends. And then they begin to mourn for days. Okay? But I want you to... Uh, Elder Holland made a wonderful point on this. How many of you at this stage of your life have been through a number of painful things in your life? Yeah. How many have gone through experiences have had people hurt you. And each time that happens, it leaves a scar. It leaves an emotional scar. Over and over and over. And so we walk around with all of these wounds and scars and everything that's happened to us. Does it make a difference to you that you're about to be healed by a wounded cross who's carrying stones. Does that help? You say, I'm wounded. He goes, yeah, me too. I've got scars and bad things happen to me. Yeah, me too. It makes all the difference in the world, I think, that we are healed by a wounded cross. And not just me too, but yeah, I feel more specifically. Like, that thing that happened to you also happened to me. Yeah, and as a result of what, what happened to me, you went through that and there I am. Right. There, there's the... You look at, you know, just shaking hands. I'm sure the apostle that we're meeting or whomever is saying, I love you as a child of God. But not, I know you personally. I know your pain. I have experienced your pain. Yeah. And that's what Christ is saying, you know. Touch it. Yeah. Because this pain is my pain and your pain. And it's so incredibly personal. It is. Yeah. And, that, and that's why, if we're just in the process of being able to talk about the atonement, that's one thing. For us to be able to be prepared, we have to know, we have to have an individual relationship there and say, this was done for me. Even with my scars. Um, somebody's got your scriptures handy. Um, do me a favor, and I want you to look at, uh, hop over to Romans 12, 2. Just a moment. I don't want to get too far downstream, but I want, I want you to get a sense about how this works. As a, as a therapist, this is, this is uh, gold for me. Okay? Have you got, who's got Romans 12? Okay, got it. Thank you.
Romans 12, 2. Here he's talking about you need to change your, you need to present a body to Christ, and then Paul's going to say this in Romans 12, 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what it is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Okay. Ooh. Okay, let's read that one slowly. Be not what? Conform until what? To this world. Uh huh. Because now what's going to happen? But be transformed. Transformed. So there's a transformation that's going to happen. And and we just we've been talking about hearts, right? And how hearts are going to be different when we have the, His blood and the law on the lentils of our heart and everything. But listen to what Paul is saying. The transformation of what? The transformation. Why would your mind have to be renewed? Because of. Think like the natural man. And where are your stars? They're here. The memory of the things that have happened to you. This is where the scar tissue lives in your mind. The the bitterness that you might carry, or the forgiveness that you're struggling with. This is where your scars are. Is in your mind. So you don't, you doubt yourself because you can go back to all those times when you done, did dumb things. That's where the scars live. It's in your brain. And Paul is saying you're going to be read again transformation. Okay, now listen closely. How are you going to do that? Because 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 the next line tells you by doing what. Your brain is going to be transformed. The scarring in your brain is going to be healed when you prove that which is good. And what's good? Uh, the, the will of God. Yeah. What's the scripture again? Romans 12, 2. That to me is gold, and that's part of what happens. He said, this is a wounded Christ that comes to you and says, I will heal your wounds. I will remove the scar tissue in your heart, and in your brains. That's magnificent. Okay. We're not getting through this very fast, are we? And then, of course, because of their tradition, look at what happens in 17. What's their response? Hoshana. Hoshana. This is the cry at Feast of Tabernacles. Do we ever use this in the modern church? Where? The dedication of a temple. It is the Hosanna shout. Spirit of God, like a fire is burning. We will sing and we will shout. God save us. Enter in. Come in. Now. Boy, there's so much. No. 
let's do this. Let's, uh, oh, the principle here, by the way, then, in preparation to allow this wounded Christ to come and heal you, is that when you begin to quake and burn, listen. Open your ears and hear what he's having to say to you. Okay? Boy, Oh, yeah. Elder Holland, by the way, I missed. The wounds in his hands, feet, and side are signs that immortality, painful things happen, even to the pure and the perfect. Signs that tribulation is not evidence that God does not love us. It is significant and a hopeful fact that it is a wounded Christ who comes to our rescue. He who bears the scars of sacrifice, the lesions of love, and the emblems of humility and forgiveness is the captain of our soul. That evidence of pain and mortality is undoubtedly intended to give courage to others who are also hurt and wounded by life, perhaps even in the house of their friends. We are more hurt by those that we esteem friends than we are by enemies. In spite of the size of the great multitude, Christ nevertheless took time for each one to have that personal experience. And it just reminds me that, you know, in the time where we take each person individually. You don't do big batches. Yes. So you're being baptized for 575 people. No, it's for one. Yeah, and I, I've wondered about that. In fact, I was just having this conversation. Gee, in the millennium, we have so many billions of people to get through that get, need to get their temple endowments before we're done. Maybe we'll have a way that one person go, can go through for like 500, you know. And, uh, and then I did the same thing. And I went, no, it's an individual personal experience, person by person. Okay, now, what did he teach? So here comes the Savior. This is the long-appointed moment. Uh, we're used to the Sermon on the Mount. Now we're going to get the parallel Sermon at the Temple. Um, now, the Savior did an interesting thing, and I don't know if he did it in Jerusalem, but he certainly does it here. Um, Rachel, you can probably get that temperature thing again. Time to time it gets a little on the chip. Just turn it off. If it gets warm, we'll turn it back on. You're the official temperature turner. Okay. He does an interesting thing, and I want you to see how this how this plays out. Um, and it's funny, I actually did this a few years ago. And when I was getting ready to get ready for this class, I was I went back and started looking at this and I went. Wow, that's really good. <laughs> uh, because it just hit me a few years ago as I was getting ready to teach this in Gospel Doctrine, and this really jumped out at me. Uh, and I haven't really seen it anywhere else. Um, I want you to look at what happens in verse at 30 by 12, because he's going to start teaching the Sermon of the Temple, which is really the Sermon on the Mount with the restoration and things restored that I think he probably taught in Jerusalem. So he's going to give you almost a preamble in verse 2, and then you're going to start getting the Beatitudes after that, and, you, and watch what he's done with those. Because this, I thought, was amazing. So, uh, and in fact, in my, uh, on my iPad, I went back and actually color-coded these so that I can actually see the, the parallels. Because it's kind of interesting. Okay? 3 Nephi 12, 2. Blessed are they who shall believe in your words. So, so part of it, now that you've seen me and you've experienced me, now you have a responsibility to do what? 
Go teach. Go tell people what you've seen. It's part of the deal. Now, but if you go to 12.3, the first beatitude is, Blessed are the poor in spirit who do what? Come unto me. That's not in the New Testament. That was, that's added, that's restored. I think it was there. This is just restored. Blessed are the poor in the spirit. Because it doesn't do anything for the poor in the spirit if they never come unto him, right? That makes no sense. Okay? So the first part is they're going to have to believe. And coming unto me is believing in your words. You're going to go out and teach them. The first step is faith and belief. Okay? The next one. And come down into the depths of humility. Okay? The next beatitude is... Blessed are all they that mourn... And I have added... What are they mourning? Their sins. I don't want a sacrifice of blood anymore. What I want is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Blessed are... So, first of all, they're going to uh, have faith and believe, and then they're going to repent. Okay? Start seeing it? They're kind of come down. But I love the idea of that repentance being those that mourn and they're in depths of humility. Anytime that you get uh, Hebrew parallelism, which is what this is, it's going to be repeated. It's repeated but, each, but with a different meaning, but it helps you understand the two pieces better. Because you've got two pieces now. Okay? And be baptized. And the next beatitude is? And blessed are the meek. It's a little embarrassing, isn't it, to be baptized? You know, you get all wet and everybody's watching. And, you know, you had your hair looking just right and everything. And then it gets, like, really bad. There's a meekness that comes. It's one of the reasons why it's done the way it's done. Okay? And the next part is... If you are, if you demonstrate that meekness and you go into the waters of baptism to keep the commandments, he says, for those that do that, I will do what? I will baptize you with fire. You will be pierced and quaked and burned. And the beatitude is, and blessed are all those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. That's where the cleansing occurs. Okay? He's walking you through. This is the Gospel. Here's the Gospel set. But wait! There's more. He's not done. Because at this point, if you've been baptized and received the gift of the Holy Ghost, what have you done? Now you've entered into the kingdom, Right? Now the, now the job is, as we were talking about a few weeks ago, stay in the boat. Don't fall out of the boat. How are you going to do that? Well, he's going to show you. You're going to receive, a, those that are baptized will receive a remission of your sins. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain. Oh, wait a minute. Didn't we do this before? Real quickly, somebody hop over to... Uh, uh, Alma 41 
We talked about this a few weeks ago, but I want to make sure that we nail this down. Because this is key. Because you want to know, well, my sins are too big and bad, or I never get rid of them, or I keep keep doing them, on and on, so how can I be cleansed? And then we go back up to Alma 41, uh, obviously my favorite uh, chapter in the Book of Mormon. Why? Because I keep flogging it on everybody. Somebody read 14. 41, 14. You got it, Sister Rachel. Therefore, my son, see that you are merciful unto your brethren. Deal justly, judge righteously, and do good continually. Okay, remember when we talked about that? This is the four things. You want to know what you're going to be judged on? Here they are. Because he's about to say, in your life, I want you to be merciful, judge righteously. This third one. Deal justly and do good continually, right? And okay, keep going. And if ye do all these things, then ye shall receive your reward. And here comes the reward. Yeah, I'd like to be rewarded. What am I going to get? Bob, tell them what they get. What they get is what? Yea, ye shall have mercy restored unto you again. Oh, wait a minute. So if I am merciful to others, what am I going to receive? Whose mercy? My mercy comes back to me. My mercy is restored to me. Think how many times, even if you struggle with self-esteem, you are more merciful to other people than you are to yourself. You think, well, I can be kind of judgmental. Yeah, but you're more judgmental to you. (coughs) What mercy are you going to get? Yours, restored back to you. And he says that. And the next one? I want justice. I've been giving justice to everybody else. I never give myself the benefit of the doubt. And he says, you're going to have justice. What justice? Your justice. Restored. That's the doctrine of restoration. Everything is restored. Your mercy, your justice, and... You shall have a righteous judgment restored unto you again. Yeah. That, that judgment you're worried about, this is why earlier in this chapter it says, we are our own judges. What judgment are we going to be judged by? The judgment we have extended to others. And finally, And ye shall have good rewarded unto you again. Yeah. Isn't that awesome? This is the doctrine of restoration. And he's saying this. Uh, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Whose mercy? Their mercy restored to them. By virtue of the atonement. Wow. Is that great? Okay. So to forgive to be forgiven. Uh, oh, President Hinckley. I watched on television the summary trial given one who had been a merciless despot. Now the moment of his extremity he wished for mercy on the part of his accusers. I know nothing of the court system under which he and his wife were tried. I only know the hearing was short, the judgment death and execution quick and final. There had been no mercy shown through long years of oppression, harsh and underlending. Now in this hour of bitter accumulation, none was extended. And then he says this. This is one of those ouchy moments. Okay, you ready? Just once you brace. Okay. Ready? Okay. Mercy is the very essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The degree to which each of us is able to extend it 
becomes an expression of the reality of our discipleship under him who is our Lord and Master. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Even those times when you don't want to extend mercy because that wouldn't be fair. What happened to me was not fair. I want blood, not mercy. If that wouldn't be fair. You're right, it's not. And who's telling you this? A wounded Christ. Who says, no, it's not fair, is it? Too, that justice is also put in there. Yeah. There is a balance. They're not saying forgive everyone and everything and let there be no justice for what that's right. happens. There's, there's both. There is. Except that we tend to see them again as, as opposing things. Justice in here is mercy is here. I don't believe that. Justice requires that there be mercy. I think that's a requirement of what justice is. Justice says there, will, there are consequences but there is also mercy if you will do certain things to be able to obtain that. Justice without mercy would just doesn't work. Okay. okay. Yeah. Actually the Christ's atonement satisfied the law of justice. It did. But the justice of God required that there be a Savior. That if there's going to be requirements with justice, there are going to be things that need to happen. One of those is, no unclean thing can enter into the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, we're all in trouble. Justice required, the plan of salvation required, the law of happiness required, that there be mercy. And the wonderful, beautiful thing about this is that if we're going to be like the Savior, we also need to extend mercy. I want to be like my Master. What does that mean? I have to be merciful. And the beautiful thing that he says, and then if you're merciful, I will restore that mercy back to you. It's coming back. I will restore it. That's, that sometimes it's so hard for me to get my head around what a beautiful doctrine that is. Okay. Last ones, and then we're about done. Ye shall testify that ye have seen me and know that I am. <coughs> Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Is that the temple? That's what this has all been. This has been this process where <coughs> How does he get a group of people into the presence of God? There isn't a prophet that's ever walked this earth that didn't have a single goal in their mind. How do I get my people back into the presence of God? How do I do that? What's it going to require? And you're watching the steps that it will take to get a group of people into that, the presence of God. And then I, to, to get the other beatitude, I, I hop down to 3 Nephi 18. Blessed are ye if ye have no disputations among you. Why is that kind of an important one to kind of throw along the way here? Because of pride? And bias. And bias. <clears throat> I don't know if you were going to... Yeah, go ahead. Contention with the devil. 
It is. It is. I don't know if you were going to like have a proper prayer and you really wanted that prayer to have some efficacy in heaven, wouldn't it be important that you pray with a group of people that you don't have any ill feelings towards? Wouldn't that like destroy the whole purpose of the thing? True prayer is that's why the Lord requires you know, a couple prayers and things like that. Because in there is going to be this, this oneness of spirit. Okay? Because otherwise, everything gets uh, messed with. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the children of God. That's why the highest praise that Mormon could pay to the anti-Nephi-Lehi's in, in Moroni 7 was I speak these things unto you because you do what? You walk the peaceable walk among the children of men. Yeah? I think that comes back to that we're supposed to be unified yeah. and that yeah. we're supposed to be directed that unity directed to do what is God's will not ours. Yeah, and you've seen that. I wish I, if I had my whiteboard, you've seen that. We use this in kind of the, the marriage counseling context where you have a husband and wife, and they're on each end of kind of the triangle here, and the Savior's at the top here. And if they're, if they're focused on each other, they're kind of battling back and forth. And I've got my opinion, you've got yours. Interesting thing is, is that when husband and wife are looking at the Savior on the triangle, the closer they approach the Savior, what happens? The closer they become to one another. Some of the disputation, because if, I'm, if we're both trying to do His will, it's amazing how many other things kind of melt away. And oftentimes, if, the, if we're really far apart, it's because somebody's not wanting to do His will. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So we live the gospel peace. Last one. For him that endureth to the end, I will give eternal life. And the last beatitude. Blessed are all they who are persecuted for my sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, I take that to mean, by the way, that to endure to the end means that we will endure persecution. That's both pieces of this parallelism. Okay? You're going to be called members of a cult. People are going to think you're peculiar. Yeah. It's like a heavenly 401k. <laughs> yeah. Sort of a heavenly 401k, yeah. Uh, but but it just it tells us what's coming. And that and part of trying to prepare our youth is to say you're going to be different. You're going to be persecuted because you're not willing to do certain things. To adults, it means as we get closer to the second coming. And President Monson said this over and over in, in conference. That, that's the thing that I heard. Was, as we get closer to the second coming, the differences between us and the world are going to become more stark. Are we ready for that? I don't know. Are we trying to keep one foot on each side? Um, okay. Any final comments on this? Make sense? <coughs>
Well, let me just let me just finish by by bearing my testimony that there is a that there is no question that this this event in the Book of Mormon is the apex of the Book of Mormon in terms of everything that it leads to, and it, um, but the fact that it happened to them doesn't mean anything to you unless you personalize it. If you make this you that says, it's my blessing to get ready to be in the presence of God, what will that take? That means that I need to repent, I need to give my, I need to wait on the Lord, that there's a period of seasoning that will take place, and then if I will let Him fill me with His Spirit, and I will put myself in spiritual places, I will place myself in positions where I get to be ministered to and have personal experiences with a wounded cross who has his own wounds and he carries our wounds with him constantly there, ever before his death. But if we do that, he will, it will result in the transformation of our mind and we will begin to place his blood on the levels of our heart and suddenly we're in a position to say, should he come into our present right now, would we be ready to fall on our knees and wet his feet with our tears? Or would we be so fearful and uncomfortable in that presence that we would choose to run in the other direction? As the world becomes more different, there are going to be a growing amount of people for whom a chance to stand in front of the Savior would be hell. Would be far too uncomfortable for them. And they would choose not to do that. I pray that we can do that. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.